is worthy. You know, I, in our day, in our age, in our setting, I don't know that we struggle too much with the declaration. We, we struggle a little bit more with meditation. Think about this. You're just saying he is worthy. Of what? Of what? Of how much? It's an easier thing to say it than to really dwell on it and think about it. He is worthy. Our big truth this morning is whoever does not die to self and pursue life in Jesus remains separated from God. We're in Matthew chapter 10. We continue our study of Matthew. You're going to see that unpacked in these verses this morning. We're going to begin reading in verse 32. If you have your Bible, follow along. The words will be on the screen as well. Verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you. He will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. If this is starting to sound a little familiar, you might have been here on Easter. It wasn't that a great day. We're all outside of the weather. It didn't rain. It wasn't too cold. It wasn't too hot. Man, all of us together. I mean, it was just a great day. I loved Easter. But one of the things you'll remember is we had a very similar big truth and a very similar passage, very similar thought. And if you wonder why is that happening, well, that's because Jesus has this message come out of his mouth a lot in his ministry. This idea of a cost of discipleship, this uh, qualification to what it meant to follow him. The work of the Spirit in saving faith and how it transforms us. He talks about this at length throughout the Gospels. One of the crazy things to me is how little we talk about it in regards to how much he talked about it. 
We'll find it back there in chapter 8 in the middle of Jesus' authority. We're going to see it here again in chapter 10 as he's sending out the 12. We'll see it again in chapter 13 and chapter 16. And you're just going to keep seeing it again and again as we walk through Matthew. And I hope along the way to pull out, just to make, a, like make us pause and just realize how much Jesus talks about this. And also to pull out some different big ideas. Remember, big ideas are the implications of those truths. So as we go, we get a deeper understanding of what Jesus is saying when he calls us to come and die and find life in him. And so in order to kind of get at that this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time to just set up a context to refresh our theology and our lens at which we look at Matthew chapter 10 and I want to specifically do that around the idea of saving faith. And so a quick just refresher on the idea of saving faith. So I'm asked sometimes, why do you use the term saving with faith? Why not just say faith? Some people have asked me that. I I say saving faith a lot apparently. And they'll say, you know, it's not really in the Bible. There's no saving faith terminology that's set up that way. And so why do we use it? Why do you use that? Well, Trinity isn't in the Bible either, um, but we use it as a handle for the comprehensive teaching of God in three persons that is clearly in Scripture and taught throughout. And so that's what we're doing when we say saving faith. We are summarizing these qualifications, these kind of qualifying descriptors that are used again and again, and you see them throughout the pages of Scripture. They'll read like, repent, turn, lose your life, take up your cross. Even in our doctrinal statement, what we talked about on Easter, that faith and repentance are inseparable expressions of grace. We are acknowledging a really important truth. Not all faith is saving Not all faith is saving. That's a really important thing for us to understand, and the scriptures are clear in this. It teaches us this. It even gives us some examples of these types of faith that are faith to a point, but not saving faith. There's a historical faith. You see that in Acts chapter 26 with King Agrippa as Paul is confronting him. You see a believing faith. As James chapter 2 confronts the demons who believe. There is even a temporary faith. A faith to a point. But not to the point of finding him worthy of death to self and life in him. And you see that in Matthew 13. You're going to see Paul talk about that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Some will wither away. Some will be choked out, and some will depart the faith. Jesus has already talked to us about this in Matthew. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? 
Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, they thought they were following Jesus, but they weren't. Watch. They thought the faith they possessed was saving, but they were wrong. Jesus says there will be many like this. Many. He describes it as the wide road. Many. Now, pastors and Christian leaders across our country, really for the the better part of the last half century, have tried to make this point so clear. Some of the most trusted Bible teachers have spoken, and they've spoken alarmingly so, about the number of people who are even in our churches on a given Sunday who are not authentic Jesus followers, who may have faith to a point, but it isn't saving faith. If you kind of go through all that, they'll kind of average out, and they'll say about 50% of the people in the churches in America this morning don't really have saving faith. Let's personalize that a little bit more. Let, let, let you get your mind around it a different way. Every year we survey people at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. And one of the things that we ask them is, are you a Jesus follower? Every time we do that, the answer is about the same. 99.5% of the people who are present say, I follow Jesus. I am a Christian. Now, if I go and I survey our elders... Not just people out there, our elders, and I asked them, what percentage of people do you think present on a given Sunday morning are authentic Jesus followers? Their answer averages out to about two-thirds. Now, let me pause and give you a quick disclaimer. Nobody's going around like naming names counting. We can't do that. You know that's not what I'm talking about. But what we're doing is we're looking at the saving faith as scripture describes it and the transformational work of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the pages of scripture and we're generally looking at the church and saying, how does this seem to line up? We don't know. We can't measure your heart or the heart of anyone else. But what I want you to see is there is a great disconnect in the Christianized culture that we still live in, between those who claim saving faith and even the leaders who are in the word, studying, shepherding them, who would identify and say, saving faith. There's a disconnect. And you have to think, how can this disconnect exist? Let let me give you evidence in a different way. Consider how many parents, and if you're a parent, I'm a parent, I get this, I've gone through this recently with my child, but just think about this. Think about how many parents struggle with their kids when it comes to baptism. Now, the issue isn't baptism. Scripture's really clear on baptism. When there is a profession of faith, immediately the people are baptized. There's no New Testament believer in Scripture that is making a profession of faith, walking around as a Christian in the early church, who isn't getting baptized. And so we don't have a problem with baptism. That's not the hard part for us, right? The truth is, it's whether or not their faith, our children's faith, is the saving work of the Spirit or just faith in part. 
It's hard for us. That's evidence that the struggle to define and discern saving faith in ourselves and others is incredibly difficult. It is hard. Matthew 10 is going to bring some clarity. And Jesus, throughout his teaching as we walk through this, as he continues to give us definition of what it means to follow him, is going to give us some clarity. It's going to help us discern saving faith. Before we jump in, a few more just doctrinal truths that we need to remind ourselves of, okay? we got to go through these quick. You could spend a whole sermon series on these things, right? But we're going to go through them pretty quick. First, salvation is an act of God, worked by grace through faith in Jesus. Salvation is an act of God, worked by grace through faith in Jesus. Salvation comes through faith. In other words, There is a saving faith. Next, we can no more work ourselves out of God's redemptive work than we can work ourselves into it. It is an act of grace. It is an act of the Spirit, an act of God. Meaning if you have been justified by grace through faith, you are eternally secure. The same God that saved you is the same God that holds you. Saving faith, then, is staying faith. One pastor said it this way. You see, the evidence of saving faith is not the intensity of emotion at the beginning, but its endurance over time. Think of it like a marriage. You don't judge the sincerity of a marriage vow by the lavishness of the wedding ceremony, but by the faithful commitment that follows it. When it comes to God, we have a lot of people who are all ceremony, no marriage. Saving faith is staying faith. It stays. And because it stays, it is a reality then that it is active. We can get this as we just think through it. Scripture is also very clear and prescribes that our saving faith is actively at work in us, that there are fruits of it, that it is present. But if you also just realize that it is staying, that means it is active. In other words, it is not defined in the past tense. Yes, it has a beginning, but it is active. Think about this. Think if, you know, Pastor Paul walks up and says, I don't know if you exist. Prove to me that you exist. Well, I wouldn't run home and, like, find my birth certificate and bring it back and show them. I'm a little mischievous. I would just smack them right upside the head and say, did you feel that? That just seems to be evidence enough. That's very much in the present. Watch. Here's the point. If it's staying, it's active. It's producing fruit. It is present at work in us. Church history summarizes saving faith usually in three elements. There is knowledge, the understanding of the content. The awareness, for example, that Jesus is the Son of God. Who paid the penalty for your sins. That through faith you and I might be redeemed. There is the knowledge 
element. There's also the belief element. It's not just enough to know it as King Agrippa did. You must believe that it is true. You must know that it is reality. You must claim it as truth. That's what the demons do. They know that it is true. There must be belief. And third, there is trust. Trust. You must submit to the truth. This is where you see these terms in Scripture. Repent, turn, die to self, take up your cross. It's, it's not a perfect illustration, but we simplify that so much with like the chair illustration. There is a chair. I know what a chair is. That's great. I believe the chair will support my weight. I believe it. But it's not faith until I trust the chair with my weight and sit in it. Yes, there is a minimal threshold of understanding. Yes, there is an initial point of belief. But we cannot forget that trust is active. Repentance is active. And it is therefore tested again and again and again and again as we live in Christ. This is why the scripture charges the believers to measure our faith by the active fruit and not the seed. You're not going to get these charges in scripture to go back and remember when you walk the aisle or remember. No, the evidence of a life changed by Jesus is present. It is active. And it perseveres. And so as we get our mind around these things, understand that saving faith isn't just staying faith, it's superseding faith. Continually superseding any and every test that presents itself. And so with all this kind of refreshed in our mind, let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. Let's see some of the teaching of Jesus here to his disciples as he sends them out. Verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Our first big idea, saving faith supersedes fear. Saving faith supersedes fear. Remember, these disciples are about to be sent out as sheep among the wolves. They're told they're going to be flogged, they're going to be hated, many of them are going to be put to death. That's, that, that's not exciting news, right? I mean, none of you walk up, you know what I want today? I want to be beaten, I want to be hated, and I want people to try to kill me. That'd be a good day. None of us think that. They don't think that. So, watch, of course there's fear. Of course there's fear, there's hesitancy, and you know what? They can avoid it. They can avoid it. They can avoid the beating, the hate, the persecution. Just deny Jesus. Just deny him. Just be quiet. When you get to the town, just go find you a coffee shop, sip on some coffee, and just quietly be there and wait and go back. Won't be any persecution. 
But see, an authentic Jesus follower cannot deny their identity in Jesus. And there are many reasons. But the one that is listed here in Matthew 10 is because the fear of God destroying their soul is greater than the fear of the wolves destroying their body. They understand that he is the one true God. That he is sovereign. And if my fear should be, it should be to him. True saving faith supersedes fear. Two other just kind of quick rabbits to chase. First, the New Testament knows no secret Christian. There is always a public profession, a witness that is mandated. Keep that in mind. You confess with your mouth. You, you profess your faith through baptism, a public display that identifies you with Jesus. But another thing to just take a minute, especially in today's context, is to consider Peter. Consider Peter. We know Peter did just this three times. He denies Jesus three times. Now, what you're going to see in Peter is, yes, his sinful actions. And by the way, we're not perfect. We still have our sin nature. We're still going to fall. You're going to have sinful actions. You're going to have lapses. Your brokenness is still going to wage war against the Spirit and His work in you and through you. And so we see that happen in Peter's life. He denies Jesus. And after the third time, watch what happens. His eyes are open and he weeps bitterly. The scripture says he wept bitterly. Not after the first time. Not after the second time. It took him three times. And if you're sitting there going, Peter, it took you three times. I'm going, you did pretty good, Peter. It only took you three times. That same Peter growing in Christ's likeness. The work of the Spirit in him. By the time we find him in Acts chapter 4 with his life on the line, Peter is the one standing before them saying, I cannot help but speak of the things I have seen and heard in Jesus. True saving faith supersedes fear. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Saving faith supersedes fear peace. Now this verse is often misused to somehow give uh, cover to violence and war. That's not what we're talking about here. Consider the context of chapter 10. Jesus followers are being thrust into a dangerous world. They are sent out as sheep, not soldiers. Uh, their, their result is persecution, not conquest. And their identity is with Jesus' suffering as disciples. Jesus' point is this. I will divide the world. Jesus, before he brings peace, will bring disunity. Take a minute and think about that. Jesus will bring disunity. See, Jesus came to cut out a portion, to separate out a portion from among the world. He did not come to keep everyone together. He came to separate. See, a Jesus follower is cut out from among the world, declared different, and through the ongoing work of the Spirit, 
actively being made into what he has been declared to be. The separation that once existed between God and the Jesus follower due to sin, now reconciled through Christ, creates a separation between the Jesus follower and the world. See, in our sin, we were all once united, broken, fallen, descendants of Adam. And it is Jesus who comes with the sword of the gospel to cut, to separate out those who would die to self and find life in him. Next, saving faith supersedes relationships because this separation that happens through the gospel exceeds everything, even our closest earthly relationships. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We all have these kind of pet peeves. One of those things for me is when, and it's, we're so bad in our culture, when we come up with these kind of partially true slogans and then they just have a ripple effect and they just get themselves out of hand and they just teach, honestly, just bad theology, broken doctrine. One of those for the last 15 years is when we run around and you hear these people say, it's all about relationships. It's all about the family. It's all about relationships. It drives me crazy because it's such a cute lie. And it plays to our heart. Scripture says it's all about identity with Jesus. And this very reality will separate us divide us, disunify us from the world, even those closest to us. These verses speak for themselves. Saving faith supersedes our most prized earthly relationships. Next, saving faith supersedes identity. Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's pretty simple for them. The cross, especially at the time Jesus is talking, listen, they don't know Jesus is going to be crucified on a cross yet. When Jesus is saying this to them, the vision of the cross for them are all the Jewish people that have been killed on those crosses. Hundreds, thousands, that they would line the streets. And they would all be forced to carry their own cross to the place of their death. It was a clear picture of a march to death. Death to self. And again, Jesus is going to go on. He's going to keep talking about this throughout his gospel ministry here. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In Luke 14, 33, so therefore, 
Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You sing, is he worthy? You profess a faith. The scriptures call us to examine ourselves. Not by trying to remember, but to examine the work of the Spirit presently at work in us. Again and again, drawing our attention to anything that we would put before Jesus. And if you ever run into a thing, you ever run into a relationship, you ever run into an aspect of your own life in which you are unwilling to lay down. I'm not talking about Peter. I'm not talking about a lapse of sin. I'm talking about a stance in which you dig your heels in and you say no, no further. Scripture is clear. That's not saving faith. It's just not. And so as the team comes on up and we continue in our time of worship, I want to challenge you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. This is active. This isn't do you remember This is, are you living a life of repentance? Jesus is talking to his disciples here in Matthew chapter 10, and he's making two aspects of following him incredibly clear. If you follow me, you will become increasingly like me. The student will be like the teacher. Second, The result that I get, you also will receive. They persecuted me. They hated me. They will hate you. Our faith is a superseding faith. Superseding everything and anything that would come between us and Jesus again and again, an active work of the Spirit, of grace in your life, giving testimony that you are a follower of Jesus. But there is no doubt that there are many who have faith to a point but not saving faith. As Paul says, will you examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith? Will you test yourselves? For whoever does not die to self and pursue life in Jesus remains separated from God. Would you pray with me?
Father, may your spirit do what I cannot. May your spirit do what we cannot. Lord, search our hearts. Search our faith. work in us Lord reveal the difference between examination and doubt Father remove the stumbling block of a faith that is past tense Give us confidence that saving faith is staying through the testimony and the work of your spirit as it supersedes every test that is laid before us. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you this morning, who does not have saving faith in you, who does not follow you, who does not find you worthy of everything, Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict them. And as we sing, Lord, they would pray. And that in this very moment, you would redeem one who was once lost. Lord, they would be found. That you would adopt them from the family of Adam in their sin and reconcile them as a son and daughter, a joint heir with your son, Jesus. Father, I pray, I plead, may your spirit work.